Now, wrath is not a word that we use very often. So much so that no one's quite sure are they quite how to pronounce it. Uh, you get it either wrath or wrath. Uh, I checked it out this week just as I wanted to be correct. The correct answer is, depends what country you're in. <laughs> the Brits, apparently, we prefer wrath, whereas the Americans, they prefer wrath. So I'll leave it up to you whether you want to go uh, with either of those. Probably because we've watched so much American TV, uh, we've ended up with wrath quite often. And I must admit, the only time I've ever heard it used outside of a biblical context is in that great Star Trek film, uh, Star Trek The Wrath or Wrath of Khan. But personally, I was never uh, never that scared. I don't think Ricardo Montalban is all that scary, probably because I saw him on Fantasy Island, uh, where he makes people's dreams come true. So it doesn't quite work as a baddie. Um, but anyway, look of 80s uh, pop culture references. But wrath is a serious business. And the passage that we've got this morning is serious and it's heavy. It's a tough one. We're going to meet the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And this is part of a series through the book of Revelation. I can assure you that other passages in Revelation are more cheerful. However, this is not one of them. So let's knuckle down and see what God has to say to us. So first of all, we're going to see the wrath of God is being revealed. Let me just read to you verses 5 to 8 of chapter 15 again. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Last week, we had mention of the seven trumpets. They sort of started off the passage in chapter 15. But here, really, the vision of the trumpets sound, uh, starts in, in earnest. The temple is opened, and seven angels dressed like Old Testament priests come out. That's the bright linen and the, the sash. They come out with priestly bowls that would usually be filled with fiery incense. But here, they're filled with fiery wrath. That is what's going on. Uh, here. I've also discovered this week that sometimes there were bowls used as well in the temple to collect the blood of the drained sacrifices. So they'd either be filled with fire, with incense, or they'd be filled with blood, which makes a lot of sense uh, of what comes next. And this is the last set of seven judgments that we'll see in Revelation. We've seen the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now we see the seven bowls of wrath. It's like it's three times, holy, 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 uh, judge, 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 really is what we see here. And after these, we're done with these parallel judgments that we see in history, and it sort of zooms in towards the end uh, of time after this. But the bowls follow the same pattern as the trumpets uh, that we saw a few months ago. All apart from the seventh one, all of them affect the same areas of creation. The earth, the sea, the rivers, and even specific rivers that are mentioned. And they do so in the same order as we go through. So it's not that the bowls happen after the trumpets. These are the same things described here, but the emphasis on each one is different. The trumpets saw these events as warnings to humanity to repent. A warning sign, a warning sound to humanity. 
They were preventative. They were there to turn people around. Here, though, as we look at these same things, the emphasis is judicial and retributory. So this is not about prevention. This is about punishment. That's what's going on with these bowls. Now, as a society as a whole, we've tended to shy away from the idea of punishment. His Majesty's Prison Service has as their what-we-do statement. This is what prisons are for, according to them. It says, we keep those sentenced to prison in custody, helping them to lead law-abiding and useful lives, both while they are in prison and after they are released. So do you see the big idea of what prisons are are there for? The big idea now is, is safety for the public now, we keep them in, and rehabilitation for the future. We send them out not to commit crimes again. And believe me, those are good things. They're brilliant things for a prison service to do. But notice that there's no mention of punishment. Prison isn't really there in our thinking as a society for punishment for crimes. It's so that they don't commit more crimes. But here, what we see from God is punitive justice. It's suffering that's not there to reform, not to rehabilitate, but to punish. His judgments do have those other effects. We saw that in the seals, we see that in the trumpets. But here, the focus is on the punishment side of what God is doing. And the saints, the believers, have been calling out for this. Here we see it in chapter 16, uh, verses 5 to 7. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, yes, the Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The mention of the altar there in verse 7 takes us back to, way back a few chapters into the seven seals, where the martyred saints were under the altar and they were crying out for justice. This is what it said in Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they have borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's the saints that have called out for this, and now God is bringing this injustice. And the very fact they're golden bowls takes us back to this too, because in Revelation 5, the golden bowls were actually uh, full of the incense, full of the prayers of the saints, it said. So the same bowls that they cried out in, God sends back down with wrath. So this is justice and judgment in response to the prayers of the oppressed saints. This is his judgment, his vengeance on the world. Now some might say this sounds very unchristian. But it's exactly what we read in the New Testament. So the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, uh, verse 19, Beloved, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We see there it's precisely because we know that justice will ultimately be done, that we have no need now in this world to repay evil for evil. Instead, we're freed up to love our enemies and show kindness to them and leave the rest up to God. And here, God acts for his people, acts for his saints. And it's not even the end here, but in history, he acts for the saints in judgment on the world. 
Again, Paul in Romans, in Romans uh, 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It doesn't say that the wrath will be revealed. It is being revealed in this world now. And if you think about it, we see it through history, don't we? Where are the great oppressors of the saints now? Where's the Roman Empire? Where's Nero? Gone. The Assyrian Empire that persecuted Old Testament saints? Well, Nineveh lies in dust. Babylon is a ruin. Here, it's, it's gone, it's obliterated. Not just a third, not just a chunk we're going to see is gone. It's gone. Kaput, they're ex-persecutors. They're relics of history. Whereas the saints, we're still here. We're still going. These plagues speak of the finality and totality of God's judgment. And they take us right up to the end, if you like. We see that the way that they're complete. Final judgment will be covered in more detail in the chapters that follow, but we get a sort of taste of it in history now. You notice as well, if you've been with us through the series so far, that actually, in, in the uh, as we had it read before in chapter 16, there's no interlude of the church. There's no uh, mention of the church in this passage. That's because the church does not face the wrath of God in this way. The church is still here at this point. History has reset. The books have uh, gone back to the beginning. This is the same period. And it's true that the church does experience suffering. But we experience our suffering as the trumpets calling us to repentance. As the seals revealing God's plan for the world. But never as God's wrath being poured on us. Because as we've been singing all the way through this morning, Christ took that wrath on himself. God's wrath is the focus here, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the church are excluded in that sense from these judgments. Throughout, though, these bowls of wrath are referred to as plagues. And as we go through them in more detail, you should be able to spot some of the templates, including the frogs uh, that we had earlier. But there was also strong links back to the curses that God promised to bring on his people, uh, Israel, should they disobey in Deuteronomy 28. In other words, these are classic ways that God judges, and we'll point these out as we go through. So the wrath of God is a thing in our world now, and so our second point, this point is much longer than the other two, this plays out in the world that we live in. The bowls follow exactly the same pattern as the trumpets. They'll affect the same things in the same order, but their effects will be more dramatic and more total. So what are the bowls of wrath? Well, firstly, we see the earth. Let me read to you verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16. And I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people, who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This plague mimics the plague of boils in uh, Exodus 9. Painful boils and sores uh, come on the people all across the world. It's a sort of plague uh, across the world of ill health. God also promised judgment by boils in Deuteronomy 28. Um, so 28, 27, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumours and scabs and itches of which you cannot be healed. Or the Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils which cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown 
of your head. Sounds pretty horrific, doesn't it? As long as you've got your health. That's what I hear quite a lot. That's what they say, isn't it? Well, these people don't. Ultimately, none of us do, do we? Disease and infirmity dog us as a species. I know that's not exactly cheerful, but all of us will die from disease unless something else gets us first. We'll all die from our infirmities. I don't want to get too political, but we've seen the power of one tiny microscopic virus setting a world in panic and seeming to bring it to its knees. We like to think that we're so big and strong and advanced, but we haven't even cured the common cold. And a flu can put us out of action for days, if not weeks. If something else doesn't get us first, disease will get all of us. And it's part of God's wrath on the world that microscopic organisms can take out a nation. Despite all our pretended power, despite all our technological advances. I say people get ill, but here it is specifically those who have worshipped the beast. As with the plagues of Egypt, many of them did not apply to the people of God. That doesn't mean God's people don't get ill. That's simply not true, is it? We're told about sick Christians in the New Testament and what to do. But it does mean that we experience our illness differently. Not as judgment or wrath, but sometimes as just part of the fact that we're in a broken world. And we experience the things that help us to grow in Christ. Something that God will use for our good to make us more like Jesus. So we do experience sickness, but not in the same way as it's described here. On to bowls 2 and 3. Let me read to you verses 3 and 4. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it came like the blood of a, uh, it came like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. With the trumpets, only a third of the sea is turned to blood, while here, all of the sea is turned to blood. With the trumpets, a third of the sea creatures die, while here, all of them die. And all the rivers and springs are turned to blood, too. This mirrors the first plague in Egypt when the Nile turned to blood and all that lived in it died. But beyond that, I think this is probably the toughest one to get our heads round in terms of the, the, the bowls that we see. Um, though the possibility of these bowls being filled with blood certainly helps with the imagery, it doesn't tell us in practice what it means, does it? There may be different nuances with the sea and the rivers. Some commentators make the sea about the economy, as most international trade with doomed Babylon was done by the sea. That's mentioned in the coming chapters, that's possible. Some make it about death at sea and in rivers, shipwrecks, sea battles, tsunamis and other sea disasters. Some commentators with a different approach to the one we're taking make it about the Gentiles, pictured as a sea of people. I'm not really sure I agree with any of them uh, entirely. Mainly because in verse 6 it talks about the rivers, certainly, as being given them to drink. It's to do with drinking water, if you like. And we know it's human blood because in verse 3 it's described as the blood of a corpse. In the next chapter we'll meet a drunk prostitute called Babylon the Great. A woman who is drunk on the blood of the saints, meaning that she's killed them. Killing them is pictured as drinking their blood. I told you this was horrific, didn't I? But it's not without consequence. Blood and wine imagery are mixed throughout the book. And throughout the Bible, and this blood that she's drinking makes her stagger, makes her fall. 
So the judgment here is most likely violence and murder, similar to the war horseman uh, in the seals back in chapter 5, similar to the wine press being trodden and producing a river of blood back in chapter 14. This is probably humanity reaping and causing its own destruction through violence and war, receiving in itself the just desserts for its bloodthirstiness, uh, causing rivers of blood. But we can look at that together later on if you want to. Right? So that's probably the most complicated one of a lot. What about bulls four and five? Well, uh, let me read to you uh, eight uh, to eleven. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Bowls four and five are are sun-based plagues. A third of the sun was switched off with the trumpets. Well, here, the sun is sort of switched up to 11, if you like. It it seems to be able to scorch people with fire. Again, this was promised back in Deuteronomy 28, mixed in with some other things. It said, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and drought and blight and mildew. Here, people are scorched by the heat of the sun, increases in the earth's temperature, It's hard there to avoid the notion of global warming. Though again, this is not a new thing. Temperatures rose significantly about a thousand years ago, to the point where England became a prominent wine-growing region. And apparently we were one of the main ones in Europe. We actually beat the French at that point uh, with our our wine-growing. It could also be linked with a growth in slavery, as historically they were most affected by the heat of the sun. Equally, it could just be susceptibility to the sun's power. We all know the horrific dangers of overexposure to the sun in the long term. That's bowl four. Bowl five, the sun is then switched off, at least on the throne of the beast. The lights are switched off, the sun goes black for it. In the trumpets, this was the trumpet of the star that fallen to earth and caused darkness by smoke. It was also the one with the king of the abyss, Apollyon or Abaddon. Here it's mirrored by the beast. It's the devil's political power as a persecutor of the church. But here, darkness comes on the throne of the beast. The empires that have risen to attack the church have fallen as well. They rise and oppress, but empires also fall. And both are part of God's judgment, as we see it through history, both the rising and the falling. Bowl 6 carries on this demonic theme. Let me read to you 12 to 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way from the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on, that he may not go about exposed and be seen, uh, so be seen exposed. And they assembled them at that place that is called Armageddon. When bowl six is poured out, the river Euphrates dries up, opening the way for the kings of the east to come. 
A similar thing happened at Trumpet 6. Four angels bound at the river Euphrates are released and kill a third of mankind with a demonic army of two million. But here it's kings beyond the Euphrates, and they are accompanied by demonic spirits, pictured as frogs, like a mini plague of frogs. They come out of the mouth of the dragon, and of the beast, and of the false prophet. We see that these frogs perform signs and wonders to assemble the people for battle. And they gather at Armageddon, uh, as a big army uh, at Armageddon. Now for us, Armageddon is associated with that great battle at the end of time. Either that or it's associated with Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler and a great big asteroid uh, if you were around in the late 90s. Uh, But Armageddon is mentioned 12 times in the Old Testament, where it's referred to as Megiddo. It was on the main road between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And as such, it saw a lot of action in terms of wars and battles. It's the site of the battle between the Canaanites and Israel, under Barak and Deborah in Judges 4 and 5. It's the site of the battle between the Midianites and Israel under Gideon in Judges 6. It's the site of the battle between the Philistines and Israel under King Saul in 1 Samuel 31. It's the site of a battle between Egypt and Assyria where King Josiah is killed in 2 Kings 23. So as it's mentioned, it's really hard to know what has got in mind in terms of is it a specific event for it to happen there? Well, really, there's so many battles that really that is what it's famous for. It's a place, it's a classic battlefield for God's people to fight their enemies. Sometimes, actually, at that place, they lose. Sometimes they win. The weird thing about the battle here is that there is no battle. Do you notice that? Humanity rises up to fight, but there's no fight. There's no contest. It's like Psalm 2. Why do the nations... Uh, rage. Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in their wrath and terrify them in his, in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If you think about it, history is a tale of people setting themselves up against God. Nations, kings, empires. But none of them stand. None of them make the slightest bit of impact. It's like the opposite of what happens in Philip Pullman's Dark Materials trilogy. Spoiler alert if you've not watched the series or read the books. But at the end, the main character, Lyra, goes to war with God. But instead of it being a great contest, God is dealt with with virtually no issue. God in the books is a senile old man trapped in a bubble, manipulated by those around him. And Lyra pops the bubble, and the battle is over. Well here, God merely speaks, and the battle is over. There is no big fight, there is no cosmic clash, it just ends. And that's what we see in Bold 7. So let me read to you verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. That's what we see. It is done. In Greek, it's just one word. Done. It would be great, wouldn't it, if it was the same uh, word that Jesus used on the cross that John records for us. You know, it is finished. It isn't. 
Though ultimately that is where the battle was won. What we do have here though is the end. The end end. And the rest of the book effectively deals with judgment day and beyond. Uh, And we have what was told to us in verse 15 verse 1. The last of the plagues if you like. The last for the wisdom the wrath of God is finished. That word there in... uh, uh, the word there that Jesus used for uh, what he said on the cross when he said it is finished means that he's reached his goal. And it's that same word there, the wrath of God is finished. It's reached its goal. What God wanted to achieve with these plagues is done. All that remains is the final judgment day. And so the end comes again for the third time in the book. Have a look at 18 to 21. And there were flashes of lightning Rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as the earth, uh, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of wine, of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because their plague was so severe. So with the end comes uh, thunder, lightning, and earthquake. And that's exactly what we see uh, at the end of the seventh seal. It's also what we see at the end of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11. Only this one is ramped up. It's even stronger. The greatest ever earthquake. The islands flee away. The mountains disappear. The cities of the nations fall. Jerusalem comes apart into chunks. Hailstones as heavy as people fall from the sky. To put this in perspective, the heaviest hailstone ever, ever recorded, um, was uh, two pounds, just under two pounds. Here there are hundred pounds, 50 times that weight. So the, the one that was two pounds would be about the size of a volleyball. These would be about the size of Maybe a medicine ball or a, a, a space hopper, if you're into those sort of things, falling from the sky. The diameter of those things would be about the size of a mountain bike wheel. Of course, this was another plague on Egypt, wasn't it? Uh, with the hailstones. We're not told how big the hailstones were there, but here they come and they land on people. The end has come. But throughout, we're told, instead of turning to God, they curse God. They cursed God for the plague of hail, for the plague was so severe. And so our last point, which is shorter than the middle point. Repentance and readiness. Again and again in our passage, we're told the reaction of the people. They were scorched by the fear heat. They did not repent or give him glory. They cursed the name of God. They cursed the name of the God of heaven for the pain of their souls. They did not repent of their deeds. They cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. The people seem to be aware in some way that God is doing this. They're aware that this is what God is doing, but instead of turning to him, they turn further against him. They curse him. I once heard it said that new atheists don't believe in God, but they hate him. That's sort of what we get, isn't it? They don't claim not to believe in God, they don't want God, yet they seem to believe in him, don't they? But they hate him. They're cursing God, yet refusing to believe in him. There is no reforming of character, there is no turning to God in the face of such horrific disaster. And this is the response of the world at large. 
That's the response of the world that we see. But I should say this morning, if that's your response, we're not at the end yet. There is still time. Turn to God today. Don't face this wrath at the end. Turn now. Use that as a trumpet rather than as a bowl of wrath. But what if we're already believers? What should our response be in the face of all this disaster and all this wrath and all this horrible things happening? We just get a little snippet in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is a sort of aside by Jesus to believers in the middle of all this. That's why they put it in brackets. He warns the reader that he's coming like a thief in the night. The whole point of that being, we don't know when he'll return. In the midst of all that horror, we actually don't know when Jesus is coming back. There's a website online you can go to where it predicts how likely Jesus' return is today, based on world events. as sort of like a scale uh, going through. But here it's almost the opposite. We don't know when Jesus will return. The sign he told, the times he tells us to look for, wars, rumours of wars, famines, earthquakes, false religion, Christian persecution. That could basically be any time over the last 2,000 years, couldn't it? It could be today. We don't know. That's the point. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they mark our age. That is what the world is like now. So Jesus will come like a thief at an hour that we don't expect. That's one of the reasons why I shy away from an overly complex view of end times. You know, this must happen, then that, then that, then that. I've met believers before who've told me that Jesus can't come back today because X, Y, Z hasn't happened. Well, Jesus is coming like a thief. And we need to be ready for him today. We need to be ready for his return. What does being ready look like? Well, we're told there in verse 15. Staying awake and staying dressed. Now, it's not saying there that we should never sleep. Uh, just in case Jesus returns, you know, you miss it. Oh, no, I was in bed. Never mind. <laughs> it's not saying don't take a bath, just in case Jesus returns and you're know, called to meet him in the air uh, in our birthday suits. That's not what it's saying. The picture here is of someone who is always alert and ready for action. They're living their life in the light of and expecting Jesus' return. It's a bit like the closest analogy I could think of was sort of a firefighter who sleeps in their uniform. They sleep in their uniform because they know that that bell could ring at any time. They know they've got to be ready to go. It's the language Jesus uses in the Gospels where I'm referring to his return. So Luke, uh, Luke 12, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. What it's saying with us, we see all this disaster in the world, as we see everything going down the pattern, don't fall asleep on the job. Don't give up waiting or don't get cynical thinking that he's not coming back. He is coming back. We need to be those who are getting on with his business while we wait. So that when the boss comes back, so to speak, he doesn't find us playing Candy Crush or snoozing when we should be doing kingdom work. If Jesus came back tomorrow... Would you be happy with how you'd live today? If this was your last day, would he be happy with how you've lived today? What this is teaching us is to serve God every day. 
You never know when he'll return. And that's not because full faith is wrath or is wrath, or however you want to pronounce it, but because as believers we want to please him. We want to be those good and faithful servants, good and faithful sons and daughters. So the world may seem like it's falling apart. It is falling apart. We see it every day, don't we? But the lesson is to stay alert, stay awake, and live for Jesus today. Well, let's pray that Jesus will give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we'll thank you that the Lord Jesus is coming back. Father, we don't know when that is. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be in a hundred years or a thousand years. But Father, pray that you would help us to be those good and faithful servants who are serving you every day. Father, help us to stay alert and not to grow weary, Father, not to grow cynical, but to keep serving and keep looking and longing for your return. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.